February 27th. This is a special day for us. Our uh, India trip is right around the corner, uh, something like nine days now. Uh, it, it is normal when you set your heart towards missions, when you pour all of your resources in missions, that all hell breaks loose, right? That happens. But we don't fear it. Our king told us to be at peace. He had overcome the world. He said he established his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So we have no fear. In fact, if anything, somebody should have warned the devil not to mess with Christians like us. Because I am determined that the more we're pushed, we will push back. You understand? We will go where others will not go. We will feed people that others would overlook. And we will be bold about the baptism and the Holy Ghost and the power of God in a way that others have shied away from. This is not to lift us up, it's to lift Jesus up. I'm not going to back up, let up, or shut up. Because I know that what God has put in us is real. Amen. It doesn't matter where we meet, it doesn't matter what we do. It matters who we belong to and what He directs us to do. Here comes our message today. I think uh, we're going to call it Inside and Undignified. Right? Because I don't know, it just sounded like it would preach. Uh, turn with me to John 10, and uh, we're going to look at verse 27. This will be a place to start. I want to give you what I believe to be a working definition for the faith that we share, for Christianity, for followers of the way. One of you is there. When are the rest of you there? There. John 10, 27. Somebody read that out loud. Read it loud. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. <laughs> I and the Father are anyhow. That's a whole other message. But I want you to hear this first part. Something that would be easy to overlook because it's wrapped in churchy language these days. But when it was said, it was not churchy language. My sheep listen to my voice. Number one, you cannot be born again. You cannot come into Christ unless the Spirit of the Father draws you. John 6.44 says this. So the sheep of God are the ones that have heard His voice and get to respond to it. There are people that are running around that claim to be in Christianity, that claim to be Christians, but the reality is they have never been in contact with God's voice in any way, shape, or form. They've simply accepted a party platform, not much different than Republican or Democrat or NRA, and vaguely hold to the ideals. But when the King of the universe gets hold of your heart, and He has spoken something into you, whether audibly, or whether through impression, whether through that broken moment in His presence, when He imparts something to you, something comes alive inside of you. Number one, I believe that authentic Christianity are those who have listened to His voice. Number two, He said, My sheep listen to My voice, and I know them. To know in biblical terms is to be intimate with. It is to be intimately connected. It is the same kind of word that says Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. This is not God being ugly or graphic or sexual. This is the Matthew 7 kind of sense when He says, Many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons? And I will say to them, Away from Me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. 
So you must hear His voice, but you also must be intimate with Him. One way to think of intimacy needs to be like this. Into me see. You need to be transparent before the Lord. Listening to Him. Letting Him examine your heart to see if there's any way in you that could be uprooted. Any way that should be changed. This is the second mark of real Christianity. And the third mark is, they follow Me. Amen. Hearing from God. Speaking with Him. Letting Him be in you and examine you. Knowing you. And lastly, you follow Him. How many people do you know? How many times have you been this person that you determine your course and ask God to bless it? How about that bumper sticker? God is my co-pilot. <coughs> Come on, are you kidding me? And how many other things have we seen like that? How many have shown up in our life? There was a certain Chevrolet extended cab with leather seats and a 350 engine in it. and I mean, Abel, can you say amen to that? Right? Had that Z71 package. I mean, and I'm like, Lord, I can see that you want me to, to buy this vehicle. And here is my fleece. I'm going to go to lunch and hurry through it and get back as fast as I can. And if it's still here, it's because you want me to buy it. That's not following the Lord. That's asking the Lord to follow you. That doesn't make Him your Lord, your Adonai, your owner and controller. It makes Him your genie. Your window at Burger King where you, you pull up an order and get it your way. That is not authentic faith. Turn with me to Chronicles 12. Need all of you there. I'm going to cherry pick a couple scriptures here. Because I don't have time to give you the entire context. But I'm going to tell you we're going to be in Chronicles for a little while this morning. I want to invite you to do some things. Number one, have you ever been reading in the Scripture and you get to what feels like endless genealogies and countings and numbers of things? Right? I mean, in the book of Numbers, not only do we have every tribal head, but we have the offerings that they brought. And you can miss things like, wow, they were all multiples of twelve. You miss things like the definitions of their names in Hebrew and the picture that it paints. And you remember even the tribal grouping showed the throne of God. I taught that not that long ago. You miss things because we're outside this culture looking in, right? But I want you to hear something plainly said buried in the genealogy in Chronicles. Look at uh, Chronicles 12, verse 32. In this counting, men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. In all of Israel, there were only in the tribe of Issachar 200 men who understood the times and knew what they should do. That's a pretty small grouping, huh? Now, the situation is David is uh, uniting the two halves of Israel. He's uniting all of the tribes. Uh, he's uniting the followers that had been loyal to Saul and those who had been drawn to him. He is being called a unified king over Jerusalem. They want to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem instead of some of the other houses that it had stayed at. And there were only 200 men in one of the tribes who both understood the times and knew what they should do. Wow. Can you say that it is a relatively small number, a remnant of people who both understand the time and know what to do? This doesn't make everybody else bad. 
It just means that it is a small group, a remnant group, who will be spiritually perceptive enough, something like Gideon's 300 out of the 30,000 that he started with, spiritually perceptive enough to understand the time, hear from God, and discern what they should do. Uh, why don't we slide down just a little bit? Look at verse 33. Men of Zebulun, experienced soldiers, prepared for battle with every type of weapon. Wow. Every type of weapon. To help David with undivided loyalty. We need to be men who understand the times, who know what to do. We need to be skilled in every kind of weaponry, spiritually speaking. But mostly, we need an undivided heart. What's this group larger? 50,000 is larger than 200, isn't it? Yes. Men who understand and know what to do is the smallest group. Men who are skilled in weaponry but just need some leadership because they have undivided hearts and they just need leadership, that's a larger group. Let's see what the largest group is. Look at verse 38. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in their ranks. All the numbers listed before this were fighting men who had volunteered. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. I want to tell you that in the church, the first place to start is be fully determined for Jesus to be Lord of every area of your life. The place that you're hoping you move to is to have no divisions in that loyalty of any kind. To be skilled in your weapons of warfare. To be undivided, fully determined in the Lord. And the last place that you hope to arrive at, this is what maturity looks like, is you have all of those things, but you also can put your spiritual finger in the air. You can feel the breeze of the Spirit moving you in different directions. And you know what you should do. This is where the Lord encourages the church to grow into. This is how in all things we grow up into our head who is Jesus. This is what apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists are supposed to be preparing the body for works of service so that we will all grow in unity in the faith and become mature. This is what Hebrews says. That the mature through constant use of the Word have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is what we are working towards. Not church attendance. We are not working towards just a blessed life. We are not certainly not working for your best life now. I'll trade this life for the kingdom any day. In fact, I believe that in this life you can live in the kingdom, have warfare all around you, and peace that surpasses understanding that overflows. I believe that because I'm living it. In our definition of Christianity, I hope you find yourself in a place where you are listening to His voice. I hope He knows you and you know Him. I hope more than that, you're obedient in your following. Moving on from there, I pray that you're fully determined, undivided, understanding the times and knowing what you should do. Turn with me to Chronicles 15. Do you know that Paul likens your body to a tent in 2 Corinthians 5? Do you know this? Yes. Shaul Paulus of Tarsus was a tent maker. So it might have been one of his favorite analogies. But it also is thoroughly rooted in the Tanakh of God. It is throughout the Scripture. In fact, the seventh feast of the seventh month of the year involved the people making temporary shelters and them dwelling in them. All of this points to something. It points to God's desire to dwell inside of you. I want to show you something in Chronicles and then we'll look at 2 Samuel. Are you with me? Yes. Y'all bored? No. 
Would y'all rather that we, you know, no, my daddy no. meet your daddy in Domino? I can turn my collar around backwards. I mean, look, our king sees fit to move in almost every denominational setting. He really does. It's an amazing thing. I've met powerful Lutherans for God, powerful Methodists for God. I've met amazing spirit-filled Catholic people. I really have. Some of my favorite people in this world are Baptists. I love Paul Washer. I think he's an amazing human being. But isn't it good to have no rules except the ones that God gives us? Now there's a danger in it. You can be full of flakes, nuts, and fruits. Right? It can be like the book of Judges. Every man's a king in his own eyes. I am inviting you to listen to His voice. To know Him and be known by Him and to follow Him. Not look for cliff notes. Not look for a cheat sheet. Not look for training wheels for your Christianity. But have to stand up and walk before Him. To know what it is to be fearfully and wonderfully made and working out your salvation in fear and trembling. To know what it is to have His Spirit speak to your spirit that you are a child of God. To know what it is to be led of Him and so you are authentically His Son. Amen. Able to yes. yes, this is what Christianity should be. If you could eat a cracker and be this, then I would eat all of the crackers that existed. You can't. This only comes from eating of the Word of God. From being indwelt of God's Spirit. Being obedient. Our King has given us a commission to go forth and make disciples and hear this, teach them to obey. The Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans, somewhere around the fifth verse, says he was calling even among the Gentiles people to the faith that springs from obedience. Our belief is supposed to produce an obedience. This is what authentic Christianity looks like. It's what the book of James is speaking of when he speaks of faith in deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do in James 2.18. This is what it looks like for any of this to happen. Number one, I want to tell you Romans 8.9 says that if God's Spirit's not in you, you don't belong to Him. So if you belong to Him, I believe His Spirit is in you. Having said that, are you experiencing all of God? Is He indwelling you in a way that is showing up in your daily life, in your actions? Is He filling your prayer life? Is He filling your ministry life? Is He filling you so that what you're doing is acting as an ambassador on His behalf? Or is most of it still going on in the intellectual realm and you're doing what you know is right, but not necessarily what you feel compelled to do? This is the battle for all Christianity. It's a battle for all mankind. It goes across denominational lines. Even when God does something in a so-called spirit-filled way a hundred years ago, they make a ritual out of it and it becomes nothing more than a ritual a hundred years later. If you don't believe that, go to an AOG church on the wrong day. I, I, I'm really equally uh, pessimistic about all denominations. I want you to understand that. I'm not trying to pick on your pet denomination. I believe that the Word forbids us to break up into these groupings. Are you in Chronicles 15 so we can talk about the indwelling of the Holy Ghost? I suppose we ought to pick up somewhere around the 12th verse. 11th verse. Then David summoned Zadok 
That's an interesting word. It means righteousness. And Abathar the priest in Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, the Levites. He said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place... What does it say? I have prepared for it. God's presence... goes to the places that God has prepared for it. It is not possible to be filled with the Holy Ghost without encountering Yeshua. It's not. Because He prepares your heart. He prepares your life. You must be born again to be indwelt by God's Spirit because He dwells in tents that have been prepared. So God raised up a man, David, to prepare a place atop of Mount Zion. It was called David's Tabernacle. The holy apostles in Acts 15 saw a day in which David's Tabernacle was being rebuilt. And I'll explain that to you more as we go. God's presence was going to dwell in a temporary structure that His King had prepared. But the King did have to prepare it. Verse 13. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of Him about how to do it in the prescribed way. One of the most difficult things to American Christians is the understanding that God has prescribed ways. You think that it's difficult to understand this as uh, maybe somebody unfamiliar with the workings of the Spirit? It's even more difficult for the crazy charismatic zoo that so many associate us with to understand it. We believe often that God changes His mind as often as a windshield wiper goes from one place to another. If a leaf blows in, we see a sign in it. I want to tell you that our God is not like that. He's not a shifting shadow. He didn't change His mind about what you were supposed to do because it was raining and your flesh didn't want to go. Right? Because we believe that God moves and He speaks very often, those who are Spirit-led call themselves Spirit-led and really they're being led by the flesh and blaming the Spirit of God. They lay at the feet of the Lord their own weakness rather than own up to the fact that, no, He told me to go and I just chickened out. Our King has a prescribed way. He prepares a heart and then He has a prescribed way that His presence fills it. And illuminates it. We call this a baptism in the Spirit, an immersion in God's presence. And He fills temporary dwellings, tents, the prescribed way. Look with me then. We'll keep going at 14. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moshe, Moses, had commanded in accordance with the word of Yahweh. They carried the Ark of the Covenant of God, the Covenant of the Lord, on their shoulders. The way that they do this is they pass two poles through four rings. Two men carry in the front and two men carry in the back. Four men carrying on two poles one object. If you were watching this and very, very familiar with the numbers that are in the Bible, what you begin to see is God's relationship with man, the number of four. Expressed in a covenant, the number two. Magnifying, one, the supremacy of God. 
This is also what our Gospels do. They are four books describing the relationship between man and God and God and man. They're expressing a covenant too and magnifying the oneness, the unity, the supremacy of our God. God had a prescribed way. And if the people of God don't carry it the way that God said, if they don't do what God says to do, then the prescribed way doesn't look like the prescribed way. Now, I, I know, Patricia, you cook a lot, don't you? It's okay, you can speak in church. Amen. Yes, Patricia cooks a lot. Patricia, are you one of those people that deviates from the recipe? Yeah. I figured that. You know why Patricia can deviate from the recipe? Because Patricia's got good fruit. But I want to tell you something. When God has a prescribed recipe, we cannot deviate from it because we can never hope that our fruit will be better than what His fruit would be through us. Amen. You know whether or not you trust the cook. You know whether or not you trust the designer if you do or don't follow his recipe. This is why the book of 1 John tells us if we love him, we will walk as he did. If we love him, we will obey his commands. If you trust the designer, we will do what he said. The degree to which we go, uh, no, that's optional, isn't it? Shows the degree to which we are not in faith. Trusting Him. Amen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. There was an incident that we'll read about in Samuel where men did not follow the prescribed way and death occurred. Mm -hmm. You need to know something, saints. As many times as a pastor can say it, I've tried to say it. I've looked at people with tears and warned them. You cannot get out of the prescribed way of God and expect life to continue. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how fast you'll die. Mm -hmm. Do you know that the argument that was going on in the garden in the people's hearts was God said the day you eat of this you shall die Satan through the serpent says did God really say that you couldn't do this or you would die one of the real problems with mankind is you didn't seem to die right away our actions do not have immediate consequences always Notice God did not say, you shall become dead the day you eat this. He said, you shall die. The moment that we step out of the prescribed way, we are dying. You just may not look dead yet. That's right. This is why a, a couple weeks can go by, a couple months, and before long you are thinking differently about God. Thinking differently about the people of God. Thinking differently about those you once trusted. It's like the devil is slowly slipping a bag of death over our head, our eyes, and our ears, and some have wandered away from the faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander or Demas in the first century did. It should not be this way, but it comes from ignoring the prescribed way of God. So I hope, number one, that our hearts can be a place prepared for God. Number two, that we will be following a prescribed way of God. I want to tell you a heart prepared for God is not a 30-second experience at an altar. You want to see a good example? Look at our brother Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a Pharisee, a great man of learning. And so often we thought those were bad words. No, this was a man who, as much as the ladder of, of Judaism could bring him close to the Father, he had tried to climb, and yet more was required of him. So he was strangely drawn in the middle of a night to come and speak with Yeshua. And he says to him, good teacher. He admired Jesus. Jesus insults him in every possible way. <laughs> Preparing a place in Nicodemus' heart. 
as time goes on, the other members of the ruling council want to convict Jesus without even having a trial. And Nicodemus stands up for him. He says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? His brothers turned on him. He said, are you from Galilee too? The regional racism. Then there is a rock-hewn tomb carved out a hammer stroke at a time. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are placing Messiah in that tomb in the same way that the Holy Spirit placed Messiah in their hearts. Is your heart prepared for Him? Are you walking in the prescribed way or are you walking in your own way declaring it to be God's way? What a great question. I want to tell you the truth. There are many times I've done both. There are many times I said, Lord, open the door, open the door, Lord. Open it. Uh Oh my goodness, it came open. It must be the Lord. (laughs) Those of you that have known me a long time know I can be intense. I can be intensely right. I can be just as intense when I'm absolutely wrong. The litmus test is, is God's Spirit leading you into this passionate thing? Or is it simply your emotions leading you? See, your emotions were meant to serve you. You were never meant to serve your emotions. Let me ask you, church, how authentically dwelling in your heart is the Messiah? How sure are you you are in the center of His will for you? We all learn in these kind of remnant churches or whatever somebody calls us. I don't even know anymore. Oh, well, we're not playing church. We're the fired up ones. And you can be saying that and still be playing church. I've watched it many, many times. Kids grow up in families watching mom and dad come in the faith and out of the faith and in the faith and out of the faith. Of course, they never say they're out of the faith. Their love just grow cold for a few years. And the children are looking at you like, we've been through these phases before. It's your teenagers that are supposed to go through phases, not you. Not you. We're supposed to have a passionate, undying love for the Lord. Walking in the prescribed way. Look where else we are. Carrying the glory of God on our shoulders. Let me ask you, what is the most recognizable thing about you? If we had to play a name association game, if I had to say, Dustin, what word would come to mind? Don't you speak. If I had to say, Gary Kitchum, what would come to mind? If I had to say, Bob Cook, what would come to mind? If I had to say, Smiley, what would come to mind? See, this is a good litmus test. Are you carrying the glory of God on your shoulders? Or do you carry your hurts around on your shoulders? Are you carrying the ark of God's presence on you? Are you carrying your own intellectual prowess around? Are you carrying the ark of God on your shoulders? Are you carrying something else? Because Christianity is about laying down everything else and taking up the presence of God. This is so easy to say and so hard to do. And yet when He does it for you, it's like effortless. Wow, all of Christianity is an enigma. It's a paradox wrapped in one. And yet it makes perfect sense when you are born of the Spirit of God. To the man without the Spirit, these things are foolishness. Oh my goodness, church, I am trying to preach. (laughs) Carrying the glory of God on our shoulders. Look at verse 16. (laughs) David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing... 
joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments. Sorry, Church of Christ. Liars. Or I prefer the word leers. <laughs> Harps and cymbals. Come on now, what kind of songs did he want? Joyful songs. I love my UCP, my UPC brothers. I really do. But I can only hear so much wailing and moaning. Because the king of the universe says, I want joyful songs. I love some of our brothers from years past. I mean, there are a few of them that sold more records than anybody besides Elvis Presley. I watched a TV program the other night with a very famous world evangelist on it. and I think he has seven or eight CDs for sale in the 30-minute broadcast I was watching. Not picking on him. The man's done more for Jesus than most of us will do in our lifetime. Having said that, what is a joyful song in 1970 might not be a joyful song in 2011 or thank God for songs like Amazing Grace. It may transcend all generations. We do not have a monopoly on this. And every church struggles with this. Every generation struggles with this. I once read a letter written in the 1800s said the problem with the church today is the contemporary music. We've lost the religion of the old hymns! When you get down to the date, you're like, did they miswrite this? <laughs> Same devilish lie going on all of the time. A joyful song is that which the Holy Ghost produced in you and it being expressed in the only way you know how to express it. And if you grew up during Credence Clearwater Revival, it might sound like that. If you grew up under the influence of the Beatles, I'm sorry, but it might sound like that. This is not the church becoming worldly. This is the church being what God has called it to be and expressing all the various fruit of the world. Are there things that God would not do? Well, take that up with Him. I mean, there are some areas I just can't see His moving in. Okay, but that's me. You notice that all those musical genres have associations with them. In my day, we called some of it headbanging. Right? Another day, they called it grunge. Rap. Whatever it might be. Okay? I'm not picking on musical styles. The point is actually to say a joyful song transcends musical styles. But we do need to think about the fact that if our music is predominantly known for one thing, there are some associations we should probably avoid. Right? I heard one brother say, oh dear God in heaven, please don't let white people uh, lead us in worship because it will sound like a country song. <laughs> he said, and if they're allowed to clap, we'll all be off beat. <laughs> His album was called Caucasian Invasion. One of the better... I almost put it on our website, but one of the older, wiser brothers talking about it. <laughs> A joyful song. What's sitting on your shoulders? What's coming out of your mouth? Yes. It's the first thing you expect to express to your brothers. Watch this one. Hey, Lizzie, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Aaron? Well, I had such a rough night. I mean, are we crying for the pity of others? Are we like a giant sponge absorbing anything that's negative so that maybe somebody will pity us? Are we fighting to be victims in the kingdom? Oh, now you know that the right answer to all of that is no, 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 no. But think about the last 48 hours of your life. How much of it was the glory of God coming out of your mouth? How much of it was a joyful song? How much of it was a biblical rejoicing? 
Let's not practice that in denial, church. Let us not look at a lemon tree and declare to God that it is a grapevine. Let's just not do things like that. This is how you end up deceived. Eric, you know we're fired up. <clears throat> I know every time I get before the Lord, He says, you're capable of more, son. I know that. I, I, I've not yet begun to reach my prime spiritually. I, I've not yet begun to tap into what God is giving the sons of God. Do you know how I know that? We're not seeing the Mark 16 signs of God all around us. And this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. We were not called to an average Christian life. Which raises the question, what is an average Christian life? It might not be what you think it is. I give you a hint. It can't be defined by a library, a degree, and a, uh, a certain dress tie. It cannot be defined by an organizational background. It can't be de defined by your creed. <coughs> Christian life is defined by deeds that were motivated by faith. Amen. And faith-motivated deeds only come from a heart that's been prepared in God's presence. Amen. From somebody walking in a prescribed way with the glory of God on their shoulders and a joyful song in their heart. Let us move on. Pick up with me in 17. So the Levites appointed Haman. No, that's not right. It's not Haman, but I didn't want to say He-Man in church. But I don't want to say Haman because you're supposed to stomp your feet and cover your ears if you're to the message. Alright, so the Levites appointed He-Man, son of Joel, from, from his brothers. Asaph, son of Berechiah, from their brothers. The Marites, Ethan, son of Cushiah, with them their brothers next in rank. Zechariah, Jaziel, oh my goodness, Shirmiroth, Jehiel, Una, Eliab, Beniah, Messiah, Messiah, Mattiah. Aren't you glad that uh, we're learning Hebrew? Uh, two more guys, and then Obed Edom. Did you see that Obed Edom is here? Obed Edom and Jael, the gatekeepers. Obed Edom is there. How about this one? Look at verse 23. We got a bunch more names. And down towards the end, the priests who were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed Edom. We're going to find out in 2 Samuel that there was a time when David was unwilling for the ark to enter Jerusalem. So he sent it somewhere. Where did he send it? To the house of Obed Edom. When it sounds like when that ark was leaving Obed-Edom's house, he chased behind it and said, look, I'll watch by the door. I'll be a gatekeeper. Can I be a guy that blows the trumpet by the ark? Look, I just want to stand close to it. Can I, can I please? I have found the presence of God and I just need to be near it. He wasn't going to let that ark out of his sight. And why not? Because he had become an addict for the presence of God. During a time period when others did not want to go near the presence of God for fear of what it would do, Obed-Edom fell in love with it. You know what Obed means? Servant. Yeah, how about that? Servant of Edom. Have you fallen in love with the presence of God? i got to tell you, in 1993, when it filled my room, my life, my heart for the very first time, when I came into contact 
with what to me was the tangible presence of God, I became worse than any crackhead if you've ever known. <laughs> and when I realized that even though Matthew could barely play in those days, even if we got on our knees and sang a cappella, I felt that rush into my life again. I wanted to do it every day, all day. This is not a word of instruction for any high school seniors in here, but I actually sat through my final exams. I wrote my name on it, turned them in, determined that my grade point average was where it needed to be, and even if I failed every final exam, I would finish with an average that was acceptable to me. That's sad, I know. I sat in the back of the classroom and read the Word. And I read it because I was addicted to it. This is not an excuse to get away from your responsibilities. I was 18 years old. I had zeal and no knowledge, but I knew this. I found something that was good, and I wanted more. And everybody that I went to that should have known how to get more, how to swim in it, live in it, walk in it, be immersed in it, basically said, slow down, son. You'll eventually become like us. And God doesn't do some of the things you're saying that happen. They say cessationism means the stopping of things. wonder what cesspool means then. I don't know. There's a neat little word association, isn't it? If these things have stopped, then how do you explain us? Isn't it an amazing thing, though? When you've not experienced a thing, to you it's not real. It's like saying there's no war on the world. There's only soccer and Starbucks in my suburban. <laughs> Gas is $6 a gallon. Why is that? There's war in the world. Oh, no, there's no war in the world. No reason to pray. No reason to be upset. No reason to be broken and contrived before God. We'll just pay more for our Starbucks. Church, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. I have an addiction, the same addiction that Obed Edom found. Look with me in verse 26. All right, I lied. Verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of the units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord. By the way, it, without making this just really complicated, Noah had an ark, right? What was it built to do? House people and animals, right? Because an ark houses something. So the ark of the covenant of the Lord. This is the house. For the covenant of the Lord, it's portable and it's being carried. And it has to be carried on whose shoulders? Men. Men's shoulders. This is because you have become an ark of the covenant of the Lord. If His presence is inside you, if His covenant is inside you, you are the walking presence of God. But do you know who was before you and the perfect one? Yeshua. When He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, these were the contents of the ark. When He said something like, if you believe because I saw you sitting under a fig tree, what will you do when you see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? He was saying, I am the house of God, the stairway to heaven, the gate to the kingdom of God. Bethel, house of God. He showed us perfectly what it looks like for a man to have the glory of God on him, to be known and know Yahweh God. He showed us perfectly what it looks like to follow Him even to the point of death. The writer of Philippians, our brother Paul, said in the second chapter, even death on a cross 
Therefore, God exalted him. A first century rabbi named Hillel said, My exaltation is my humiliation. And my humiliation is my exaltation. The ways of the flesh are directly contrary to following the Lord because the flesh exalts. The Spirit will humble your flesh so that what's important can be exalted. The Lord's name. Our brothers here, the elders of Israel are carrying the presence of God figuratively. The symbol of His covenant with mankind. In verse 26, because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Isn't it something? You know, the Bible tells children to love their parents. It does not say, uh, parents, you must love your children. And the reason for this is because it is assumed that love flows downhill. We have to be taught to reciprocate love to our Heavenly Father. He first shows us love, and then we learn to show Him love. A child is the same way. The when their lives start, not a lot of fun. I mean, they're cute, but they snot everywhere. They dirty everything they touch. They're, when they're getting mobile, I mean, you lose your hair. Look. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, way, after you've demonstrated love to them, the hope is that they begin to reciprocate. And somewhere around 30 years old, <laughs> they come back and say, Mom, Dad, you weren't stupid. You weren't wrong. In fact, you're pretty wise. I'm sorry, I could use your help, but would you quit spoiling my kids? <laughs> When you learn what the Lord has done for you, He's introduced you to His voice. He's let you be intimate with Him and Him intimate with you. When you have learned to follow Him, when you have become fully determined, undivided, know and understand what the Lord's will is and want to do it, when this is you, you want to reciprocate. We're going to read in one place every few steps that sacrifice. You know, you carry your cross daily, the Word says. You deny yourself, take up your cross and carry it daily. Why? So that every few steps you can sacrifice. Well, what is it that you're sacrificing? Anything that's not of God. It's like the circumcision knife never ends. It's carving your heart, carving your heart, carving your heart. Anything that doesn't belong is being removed so that that which remains is unshakably of God. An anchor for your soul that has gone behind the curtain into the most holy place. Sundays I don't know where I set my car keys. I mean, my wife can testify. She's in the back. I literally cannot find my belt I took off yesterday. It's like a great enigma to me. I think when I leave the house or go to sleep, she hides everything. So that she's the only one that knows where these things were placed. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's to the glory of kings to search it out. I could not find anything were it not for our king. Now I'm not speaking of belts. I'm talking about those true spiritual gems. Do you hear how the Word flows out of a heart that is fully devoted to the Lord? Now you may not like it because it's NIV. Maybe you're a New American Standard guy. Maybe you're a King James guy. But it is the Spirit of God moving. I cannot remember what I watched on TV yesterday. But I can tell you, when the Holy Ghost is moving the glory of God and the joyful song and the Word of God begin to flow out. You can't prepare sermons like these. I'll let you all have my notes afterwards. You won't be able to read them or understand them. 
But the king of the universe resides upon us. He rests upon us. He is inside of us. Don't take this ugly, but if you're doing really good, you should be his puppet, his ambassador, his friend, his servant, his bond servant. To be a bond servant, you would go to the doorframe of your house in Israel. Your ear would be pierced with an awl. Have you ever even been pierced for the Lord? Or has He only been pierced for you? Get out of your head the old theology that just says, oh no, I can never do anything for the Lord. I'm true. Men have given their lives for centuries. For them. There's a lot you can give the Lord. You can give Him your whole life every day, day by day. Amen. You can give Him your will moment by moment. You can give Him your emotions every time they rise. There's a lot you can give to the Lord. But the prescribed way always involves sacrificial steps. Sacrificial steps. I want to ask you, are there sacrificial steps in your life? Or is there mostly comfort? Turn with me to 2 Samuel 6. Because God helped them, they said, they gave a sacrificial response. Wait till I hear those pages stop. You remember when I said I couldn't find anything? Does anybody have any idea which one of those bottles of water was mine? Thank you, Jim. God bless you. I told you she finds everything that's lost. Isn't that awesome? You know the biblical word for helper? Easer. Easer. It's the other half of you. It's what completes you. God says, not good that man be alone. I will make for him an easer. You know what's interesting is Psalm 121. I look under the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. David called him an easer. Now i got to tell you, I promise David's not saying the Lord's my wife. But Israel is the bride of Christ and the king of Israel will say, he's mine. My easer. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing thing. What's your relationship like with the Lord? Are you dating Him? Do you go to prom together a couple times a year? Or is He your easer? Here comes 2 Samuel 7. Nope, 6. David again brought together. By the way, this precedes uh, what we read. Chronologically speaking, this happens three months before what we've just read. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men. Come on now, chosen. You are not here by mistake. The king, the king of Israel has drawn you. Some of you should not be here like me. But you were distressed. You were indebted. You were discontented with the present regime. And you said, I see a king on the rise. And I want to go to him. So you met with him at a cave in Endulam. He was not yet lifted up above the rest. He was not yet united king over all of the world, but you knew who he was when you saw him. There may be another king that holds his title, a prince of the power of the air. Maybe a Herod. But you knew who he was when you saw him. And you said, please, can I be a part? And he said, yes. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You're here because you were chosen by the living God. 30,000 in all. 
He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the Hashem. The authority, the body of work, the reputation of God. This ark was not just a covenant. It was as if God was there. It was not an idol. It was movable. But enthroned above it, between the wings of the cherubim, was the throne of God. This was an earthly, visible representation of something that was happening above Israel all of the time. God was enthroned on His people. The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah in Ohio, the Buckeye, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. Let me ask you something. If this is God's throne, if this is the visible representation of God on earth, if what you're seeing move on the ground is really symbolic of what is moving in the heavens right then and right there, does He need your guidance? These are those moments where men like Peter who loved Him looked at Jesus and said, Oh no, Lord, never. And how did Jesus respond? Get behind these are those moments where they tried to make Jesus king by force and He said, shut up and get in the boat. <laughs> These are those moments where we have tried to provide guidance for how the Lord should do something. There is no arena that that's more true in than the way that He should and He should not move in our services. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh, well, you know, we're Lutherans. We don't do that. So you feel the need to guide God's presence in your service? Because I thought it was supposed to be the other way around. Oh, you don't understand. We're sinners of God. We don't do that. So what wouldn't they do? How about King David shows up and dances in his underwear? How's that going to go over, friends? Oh, dear God, what if he had a beard? Or didn't have his collar buttoned or his sleeves buttoned? What if he was wearing shorts or chocolates? God wouldn't do that. How sure are you of what God wouldn't do? He spit a loogie into mud and made a man's eyeball. It didn't get any stranger than that. I know some of you are really sharp on Hebraic things, and you're going to talk to me about the customs of the firstborn male sitting in dirt. I just want to tell you, to the average pork-eating Gentile out there, this is a strange thing. Okay. Strange and yet beautiful. They guided the new cart with the ark of God on it. You know, that's one of those strange sentences. It's like an oxymoron. How do you, as a human being, guide the presence of God? Well, they're not really. They're just guiding what it represents, but apparently he takes that seriously. You know, in the hometown that I come from, there was a church that grew out of a garage. grew to be quite large. Uh, One of the local Baptist assemblies had thrown out the pastor because he got... Spirit-filled. Got baptized in the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Me and speaking in other tongues. Uh-oh. So they said, you're not Baptist anymore. He wanted to stay Baptist, so he called his church Bethany Baptist. Before long, the church in the little garage was growing. And growing and growing and growing. So that the elders who had thrown him out as children were now going to that church. It's like the ark had moved. And then the widows of the elders were going to that church. And then that pastor... 
Pastor Stockstill, called a buddy here in town, and John Osteen, who was also a Baptist pastor. He told him what happened. He said, you're not lying? No, I'm not lying. He blocked out his schedule, went and hid in a hotel. said, Lord, if this is real, I want to know it. And guess what happened? He got baptized in the Holy Ghost, started speaking in their tongues, started a church in 1956 in a beat store. Now, both of those men have gone on to be with the Lord. Their sons are pastors. I don't know what you think about those ministries, and I have no comment on the matter. But I want to tell you, they all began when the presence of God moved on somebody in a way they didn't think could be moved on. How about that? Chosen men that they're trying to guide the ark. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. They didn't only use an organ. They didn't only sing a cappella. See how strange some of the things people do are when you actually read the Word? When they came to the threshing floor of Macon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Chosen men were trying to guide the one who was supposed to be guiding them. They were taking hold, trying to control something that didn't seem to be going well. God calls this an irreverent act. Listen, verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So, well, Uzzah was probably a pretty good guy. He was. This is a mercy killing, friends. Would Uzzah really want to go down in history as the guy that ruined the shadow and type of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost? God cut his life short before. The same way that he stuck John the Baptist's father's tongue to his mouth so he couldn't say anything he shouldn't say before he was born. The same way he's put limitations in your life, goads that Paul tried to kick against until God got hold of him. But think about this. Guiding the presence of God. Trying to control the presence of God. And what did God call it? Say it. Irreverence. But what do people call that today? Reverence. Well, out of reverence for God, we don't prophesy. Out of reverence for God, we have no speaking in tongues. That doesn't exist anymore. Out of reverence for God, we do this, this, and this, and it's so much more efficient, you know? Isn't it strange that men call reverence something that God calls an irreverent act? Woe to you when evil is spoken of as good and good is spoken of as evil. You know what is irreverent? To refuse the leading of God's Holy Spirit, which is your seal guaranteeing you to the day of redemption. Your seal is not that you speak in other tongues or don't. How ridiculous. Your seal is that you do what He says to do. That's your seal. Oh my goodness, church. This is something we need to know. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. I love the Hebrews, like the American Indians. They named everything by what happened. Perez means break out. So that place is forever called Break Out Uzzah. In the 80s, that would have been interesting. Huh? I just got a picture of Uzzah doing the windmill down there. How about the caterpillar? Y'all know what that is? Moonwalk? Y'all don't know what break against me? You think they're old. 
Look at verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing. I want to tell you where most of the church world today is, is afraid and unwilling. Afraid and unwilling because they can't control. They can't guide. They can't predict what will happen. The prescribed way of God is anything but predictable. It is anything but controllable. It is anything but guidable. He is in the driver's seat. He is not your co-pilot. You understand. It is radical. It is revolutionary. It's the kind of thing that says, I don't care whether you understand me or not, Eric Stevens. I chose to move your building, so do it. It's not the kind of thing you say, Lord, can we vote on it? Lord, would you like to hear some dissenting opinions? I kind of like the building, you know. Lord, you know I cut my hand doing that? Lord, you remember when the sewer back up? And he's like, hey, is it a sacrificial step for me or is it not? I'm like, oh, that's right, Lord. It's about denying ourselves and following you. If you're following Jesus, does not involve you denying yourself. You're not following him. He walks one direction and it causes you to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow until nothing is left of you but Him. Those of you that have been walking for a long time with Him ought to be pretty narrow. You're going to brag about being in the Lord 20 years? You might need to consider what you're actually saying. You wouldn't need spiritual liposuction wouldn't need any plastic surgery because the Lord is very good at removing flesh. And yet, this is not an unpleasant one. First John says the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. The mikvahs of the Lord. The commands. Our theologians have made them a chain wrapped around our neck. And instead, God said, these are the right way to walk. Oh my goodness, church. Watch this. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The presence of God wanted to rest in one place and they would not have him. So he remained on someone else. Are you giving your blessing away? Wherever the presence of God goes and remains. John the Baptist said this about Jesus. The one who called me said, the man that you see have the Holy Ghost descend and remain on. That is the one. Then Peter, full of the Holy Ghost. Then uh, Peter and John, full of the Holy Ghost. Is the presence of God remaining on you? Because that's where the blessing is. To remain on you, you must be indwelt with Him. Eric, you said all believers have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you couldn't be here if you didn't. But there is an immersion in Him, a permeating in Him that begins to express itself in all kinds of ways. And the ways that the book of Acts so clearly says is they began to speak in other tongues and prophesy. If you're out there and you say, Eric, I don't speak in other tongues, you are not lesser than a friend. You just have a Corvette and don't know it. If you're out there and you say, oh, I do speak in other tongues, congratulations, you've got a pacifier. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a step. It is not the only step. It is not the biggest step. It is not the most important step. It is a step. It is an initial evidence. So, well, what gives you the authority to say that? Well, I've experienced it. I've experienced it hundreds of times. I prayed for far more people than could fit in any of these buildings. And I've never seen a man not receive that wanted I refuse to sit around and argue about whether it's for everybody. It's for everybody who wants it. Remained and the Lord blessed him. Look at verse 12. We're wrapping up here. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God. When you see the blessings of God somewhere, when you feel the power of God somewhere, there are a couple responses you can have. Do you remember the church I told you about in my first hometown? The one where the man got filled with the Holy Ghost and got the left foot of fellowship from, uh, from one of the denominational churches? Guess who was there 20 years later examining, studying what they did, writing down the way their worship service went, where their lights were, what kind of sound system they had, the design of their building. Because while their church was shrinking, this church was growing and not just growing in numbers. 90% of their budget was going to missions around the world and yet everything was paid for. Generations of people were being raised up in righteousness. So I saw the same sons of men who had thrown out this pastor years before sitting in the back hoping nobody would notice them taking notes because they wanted those results but would not walk in that prescribed This pops up in gym services all over the world. Oh, this is not dignified enough to make it into our blue-haired sanctuary. Hide it in the gym. Under a bushel in the gym. But before you're too critical, at least it's a place to start. Had David not seen the blessing at Obed-Edom's house, he never would have and got the ark. You don't know how many gym services began to outshine the main sanctuary, and then everybody goes, maybe we're missing something. Our brother Gabriel is at a church right now where the theater service was outshining the other service, and guess what they did? said, something's different about this guy. Can anybody find a young man with whom the Spirit of God dwells like this? That's what Pharaoh said about Joseph. And so they've exalted him. Now he's the worship leader for the whole church. They put microphones in the audience, and Baptists are prophesying. None of these denominations, none of these things are an enemy. In fact, what happens as we all get together is we begin to learn how to glorify God together. We all rub off on each other. Had it not been for the Baptist church, I would not have grown up with a reverence for the Word. If it had been left up to the Lutherans, all I would have wanted to do was be um, have some water thrown in my head and take communion at 13. That's all I would have wanted to do. Those were the only two uh, influences I had. I learned from the Lutheran Sola Scriptura, the cry of Martin Luther. I learned from the Baptist a reverence for the Word. And then, as I began to emerge out of that, I found out they left out most of the Word. But they taught me how to view the Word so that when I did come into contact with it, I went, oh, wow. I don't care what you say. If the Word says that I'm doing it. Can you relate to that? Yeah. Here's where we finish. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. 
David wearing a linen ephod danced, oh my goodness, before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. That's a shofar, friends. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When you despise any kind of display for the Lord, anything that can be seen, you can be married in the right family, you can be in the right places, you can be living in the palace, but you are not of the Spirit of God. The last verse of this chapter says she could have no children. I want you to know you cannot despise the moving of God and bear fruit for God. So, well, I'm sure she was a bad lady. I'm sure she was not. I'm sure she was very convinced in her own mind she was right. I believe she was very sincere. And friends, it is possible to be sincerely wrong. I have been there many times. Usually what required me to learn was to have the temple torn down in my life so it could be rebuilt in a way that God wanted. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place where inside the tent David had pitched for it. I want to ask you, are you pitching a tent for the ark of God? If your heart is prepared by Jesus, if you're walking in the prescribed way, your life needs to be a tent that God fills with His presence. And you know what David did with that tent? Because on top of Mount Zion, he ordered 24 hours of worship around the flock. He rolled up the sides of the tent so that all the nations passing by through the crossroads of Israel could see the glory of God and desire. In 2 Samuel 6, we see salvation in dwelling. In 2 Samuel 7, there's a covenant affirmed with David that extends to the whole world if they're willing. In 2 Samuel 8, David has complete victory over all of his enemies, like a millennial reign. And in 2 Samuel 9, he takes broken little boys who were crippled, and he set them at the king's table, even though they didn't deserve to be there. We find the plan of God in 2 Samuel 6, 7, 8, and 9. Which chapter are you on? Now stand your feet. When the tent is inside, when the ark is inside the tent, you can look at the daughter of Saul, Michael, and say, yet will I be more undignified than this. Very often for the presence of God to dwell in a person, they must be undignified. Because it is our pride, our strict adherence to what we already know, that keeps us from receiving from God. We need to be like Zacchaeus, realize our limitations, climb the tree that God gave us, and when we meet Jesus, go wherever He tells us to go. You wouldn't be here if you didn't already have that courage. I have no Boy Scout merit badges that I'm trying to win. I do not go home and notch off in in my spiritual vault somewhere. Little tick marks. Got another one today. My goal for you is that you would experience all that God has for you. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, He will fill you. But it will take courage on your behalf. 
cowards don't make it in the kingdom. Read the book of Revelation. People require boldness. And it won't start or stop with one gift. It expands to every area of your life. I was prophesying before I knew what it was. I didn't speak in other tongues because I was horrified and I was told it was of the devil. Then I met Matthew. I already knew Matthew, but Matthew began praying in other tongues, so I went, can't be of the devil because Matt's not of the devil. Then I went to Disney World and I thought they were all speaking in other tongues. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It grew in my heart. I met a crazy missionary. It's usually somebody outside the church. It's got to be because inside the church they're serving for shekels and shirts. He told me the truth. I got baptized in the Holy Ghost and it changed the direction of my life. I didn't sit and argue anymore about an apple someone had never eaten but claimed to know what it tastes like. Because I had eaten the apple. Pray with me. Mighty God, all a man's ways are in your fuel full view. We ask, Lord, that you would probe our heart. Mighty God, that you would move in us and through us. That we do not take the easy way out and say, well, whatever you want to happen will happen. We know obedience is required. Lord God, we are not looking for an emotional moment at an altar. We're looking for lives to be changed. I ask that from this message you would deposit seed into people's hearts. That they would have courage to stretch out in new areas. Lord God, that they would be baptized again and again and again and again in your presence. Lord, that you would overflow, that you would be a spring of living water welling up to eternal life and splashing on everyone around us. Lord, what makes us distinctive is that your presence is upon us and we have learned to depend upon you. Holy God, if anyone feels singled out in this group, I pray that they feel singled out by you. Lord, we commit this service to you. We thank you for our future. We thank you for the hope that we see. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's something, saints. If you can be back here at five, uh, any of you, uh, we don't need 30 people, but the thing is, is we wouldn't turn away 30. We can probably finish very quickly. Please bring uh, some power tools. Um, and another thing, if you thought, oh, goodness, I feel like he's talking to me, I am. Everyone. There's nobody here who said, but I've been doing this or that for a long time. No, in, until we're raising the dead, until we're opening blind eyes, until items that you have prayed over and been sent to people are raising the dead, then I, I think we got a ways to go because this is what the first century church looked like. There is no place to rest on your laurels or coast. Period. We need to press further into Him. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Amen. Amen. Amen.